0: All right. So if we would, let's go ahead and get in Ecclesiastes seven. It's a it's a sobering passage. It's I love Ecclesiastes, the book of Ecclesiastes, and Gary has been so kind for me to always preach on the Old Testament. I love the Old Testament. I uh, just I got my ThM at Gordon Conwell in uh, Old Testament. I think there's so many wonderful advantages, not advantages, but pastoral or uh, aspects to this to this particular passage that we could really apply in our hearts. So. Um, you know, when I came here, one of on the reasons I was a little late, there was a guy that actually, I saw a guy die this morning. Uh, literally, he was dead on this side of the road. Um, he was in his motorcycle and um, he had crashed and there was blood on his feet. And I was driving up here and he was dead. He was dead right before I came up here. Um, just said a prayer for this young man. He looked like he was maybe about 31, 32. And a whole bunch of cars had stopped, and they were obviously. I, I, since I work at the hospital, I know what death looks like. And he was not moving; he was gone. Um, guy was trying to uh, uh, wake him up, but there was there was no movement, and I could tell that he, you know, just imagine this. Here he was on this beautiful sunny day, going on a motorcycle ride, and um, I don't know what happened. There was another car on the side of the road as well, and the guy is he's dead. Um, the reason why I bring that up is because it really, uh, in a sovereign way, uh, is, is, is relates to what I'm going to be talking about today, is in the sense of how often do you think about death? And um, how often do you think about funerals? And in this particular passage, what Solomon is saying to us is that if you want to be wise or wise people, they think about death a lot. It's not in a morbid way that they get pleasure from it, but it's in a way that that says, in order for you to attain wisdom, you're often often thinking about the house of mourning more so than the house of mirth. Now, the the book, as we'll see in this passage, it's not saying that you have to be this kind of downer, depressed person all the time. In fact, one of the things that's going to be talking about is that if God gives you really wonderful days and prosperity, right now, you should really, really rejoice in it. Um, in fact, it's unwise to think about you know regret and uh, you know thinking about all the things that you have lost. So it's not this passage where that just tells you to always be morbid all the time. Quite the contrary, it's saying how often do you think about uh, if you were to make a choice to go to a wedding or a funeral, which one would you choose? And he's saying right here that honest that it is actually better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. That is the Why, because it's the end of everyone and the living will lay it to heart. So how often do we live having pleasure always on our minds? How often do we live for retirement or for the weekend? And if someone were to ask you that, where would you go? Would you rather go to a party this weekend or go to a house where all the people are crying? What would you choose? I think if somebody were to ask me that, I honestly probably would say I'd rather go to the party. I think most of us maybe we might might say the same thing. But if you want wisdom, if you wanna be present, if you wanna be balanced, what Solomon is saying is, it's actually better to go to the other place, the place where there are tears. Why is that? Well, life is difficult. Life is difficult. And many people don't accept that. They fight against that quite a bit. Um, And one of the reasons why people have so much bitterness in their hearts is often because they expect life not to be that way. Contempt often will come when you allow this kind of false expectation to rule over your own reality. I see that a lot with couples, for example. So a couple will come in, maybe they've been married for eight years or 12 years, and they'll often tell me, I wish it was like when, when, when we first met. He doesn't look at me the same way as he did before, or she doesn't look at me in the same way that she did before. It's almost as if the contempt that has been building up in their hearts for so many years becomes calcified because the expectations that they had about this wonderful, beautiful Cinderella-like marriage, whatever you want to call it, didn't turn out to be the way that they expected. And because of that, they have slowly over the years, begin to despise their partner. People really do expect that about life as well. They expect life to just be, you know, pleasure, or maybe not pleasure, but painless, carefree, uh, fun. And what we'll see, the most dangerous part, is predictable, (laughs) really predictable. If I do this, then I'll do this. And yet, this past year has been anything but predictable. When something occurs that is an outlier, such as an economic crash, coronavirus, the passing of a loved one, people who expected life to go as planned, if you notice they will often become the most upset. They'll become the most confused. They'll often become the most bitter. And it's really natural for you to be that way. If you're very bitter, it's natural for you to be bitter because the expectations were so high. It's natural for people to predict life and dictate rules that are supposed to apply in every situation. I think that's part of our human nature. And yet, when a black swan occurs, when you're expecting all the white ones to be in the, in the air, you get thrown off, You drastically affects it drastically affects you. And the predictions that you may have had are tore down. And so right here, I wanna talk about how do we live? How do we live in this unpredictable world? What should we focus on? where should our attention be, and how should we be be balanced? So I want to talk about three things, how to be wise, how to be present, and how to be balanced. Let's focus on the first part, how to be wise. I won't read all eight verses, but the main part of here is that in this passage, in this section, one through eight, he wants us to meditate on the house of mourning. He wants to meditate on the house of sorrow. This why? Because death is the end of all mankind. So in this passage, it comprises of these sayings in the form of better X than Y, better this than that. What he's doing is that he's calling for this sober awareness of death, and he declares it to actually be a part of wisdom when you take death to heart, for that is the reality we face. Uh, as I said before, this isn't, cont- isn't to condemn feasting or, f- or, or, or joy, but it's to have this open-eyed preference to our own mortality. The perfume here where he says, uh, good name is better than precious ointment, I believe what he's saying right here is that the final reputation on the day of the funeral is much better than your own little birthday party. The final end is so much better and your birthday. You see, in the military, we honor people for a battle that was done in the past. We embolden them with positions of leadership. My father was in the Navy. He got a, a medal or a plaque for being on the, in, the, in the military during, the, during Vietnam. Uh, same thing with my, my uncle Alex. He got a purple heart and for serving as a medic in Vietnam as well. And he looks at that and he has all these memories, all these memories of how he served his country. We rightfully do that for our military officers. But while this practice works really well in the military, it doesn't necessarily apply in the Christian life. There's a different, it's it's very different. Because what we do, we have a tendency to do as Christians, is that we will often have pride in the achievements that may have been done early in our life and be content with that. Maybe we did something that was an amazing Bible study. Maybe we preached sermons. Maybe we opened our homes to the homeless. Whatever it may be, maybe we raised godly children. And then I see a lot of Christians, as the older we get, myself included, will often just take stock in the things or the achievements that we may have done long ago. That's not gonna work in the Christian life. It may work in the military, but not in the Christian life. And that's why Paul is going to allude to this later in 1 Timothy, where he says the soldier, the true soldier, the Christian soldier, he doesn't just stop at one battle. He finishes the task. Jesus is also going to say the same thing when he talks about the sower, the seeds of the sower, where he says the good sower, or excuse me, the good seeds bears fruit all the way till the end. And so it's hard to finish. We can't finish without God's grace, but the question is, how do we finish well? Well, One of the ways to finish well as Solomon is saying to us, is that one thing that will help is go to the house of mourning. Visit the cemetery, in other words. Or, I think what he's, uh, the other thing that I think he's talking about too, because it's relationships, have friends that know how to correct you, have friends that rebuke you, have friends that will tell you the truth, truth tellers, that can do it in such a way that is in love. Fools in this passage stay in the house of mirth. And one of the reasons why is because the house of mirth, if you ever go to a bar in a restaurant and you listen in the conversations, and this isn't me making it too much of an overgeneralization, I go to restaurants as well, is that you'll often hear just kind of flattery. Why? Because they're forgetting the grave that's awaiting you. Flatterers will often tell you what you want to hear and fools will seek a life of avoidance and pleasure and demand that those rules apply in all circumstances. I know people who actually get upset if you bring up something that offends them. I teach at a college campus at Endicott, even though this doesn't, we're, we're pretty good over here, but even in our own colleges, we have safe spaces for students. If, uh, if somebody gets elected that they don't like, if a teacher may have said something that kind of hurts their feelings, They actually have teddy bears, $50,000 a year. You have kids that are now having safe spaces because something may have rubbed them the wrong way. And it's easy for me to pick on the youth because I certainly wasn't raised that way, but aren't we the same way? Aren't Aren't we the same? Because we surround ourselves often, at least I do, with friends that basically help us make us feel good, live for the weekend we work ourselves literally to death for a higher retirement fund. And what, this, what he is saying to us is, don't live a life of mirth or a life of the fool. You know, I read Plutarch. Plutarch is a famous Roman historian or an essayist. Uh, it was right around the time of Paul and read one of his essays uh, yesterday. Didn't know it was gonna be related to this, this sermon, but he has this wonderful essay to tell, on how to tell the difference between a flatterer and a true friend. And I think it really applies. He says a flatterer is mutable. He's inconstant. He's not his own person, but ever changing to be the person he thinks will appeal to you. A flatterer praises indiscriminately and copies his object vices rather than his virtues. A flatterer is always seeking a please. If you give a flatterer absurd advice and speak impertinently of his undertaking, he will actually agree with your disagreeable counsel. He'll actually lower himself and not really stand up. A flatterer appeals to the lower, not the higher nature of his victim. He's too eager to seem a friend and who works too hard at gaining your trust. The flatterer labors to please rather than profit you. And finally, the flatterer will seek to separate you from your true friends by speaking ill of them. The flatterer will often gossip about people that are actually really healthy in your life. How is that contrasted with with a friend? A friend, Plutarch says, agrees that we need friends not merely for companionship, but a true mark of a true friend is a truth teller. Is a truth teller. Indeed, a friend laboring to profit you rather than please you. He acts as God does. He gives you daily blessings, whether we're mindful of it or not. As Jesus says, your right hand doesn't even know what your left hand is doing. That's what a friend will do. He won't just like put something right here and say, oh, did you see what I did over there? He'll put something right here and walk away and not expect any other praise. Truth-telling often requires the friend to reprove us, something that the flatterer, ever fearful of losing our confidence, cannot do sincerely or effectively. This freedom of speech with which the friend reproves us for real faults is a great, messy, and substantial weapon and the war against untruth and unseemly conduct. And I think that all applies. So the friend will honestly tell you and bring you back to that sense of reality. Yes, this is a good party, but remember your end. Remember where we're going. He doesn't say it in a way that brings all the mood down necessarily, but that's his reality is not just in this world, but in Christ himself. I have felt most loved when somebody reproves me rebukes me in a way that's very loving that I needed to hear, and I feel so isolated and so alone when people tell me exactly what I want to hear. Maybe you're the same way. The second thing, too, is to be present. That's how we are wise. The second thing is to be present. What does he mean by that? Well, this is why it's not just uh, uh, the downer part of this. Of this, of this uh, it's not just, what should I say, just depressing here. It's also, if God gives you prosperity Enjoy it while you can. In fact, the main verse here is, don't say why the former was better, and if God gives you prosperity now, be joyful. I just just asked you a question. Are you, you know, you don't have to raise your hand, but are you an angry person? Uh, Do people describe you as defensive, irritated, bitter, short-tempered? Think about that for a moment. Sadly, there have been times in my own life where I have been described that way. And if so, I want us to really look at the deeper, what's going on? Why are we, why, are, why do people get so angry? What drives that anger? You know, as I said, I meet clients on a daily basis or four times out of the week. And I've even, you know, led groups on anger management. And one of the things I've noticed about a lot of the clients that I meet with or the groups that I met with is that the anger itself is often this kind of cover up. It's, it's this kind of protector to the hurt that they're really feeling, or maybe the loss, the sense of loss that they truly feel. Some of the men that I was counseling or in this group, they're going through divorces, maybe they're going through broken relationships, a lost job, or the worst for a lot of men, a sense of publicly being disgraced, or the worst for some of the women that I've met with anger, um, a sense of not being needed anymore by their children. And it's not that these men or women didn't feel, they did. But what was driving their anger was a sense of shame, a sense of confusion, a sense of betrayal. It's real raw, that that part. So the anger is kind of a push. It's a protector to get you away. And look, the preacher isn't a therapist. (laughs) You know, I have to forget that, I sometimes do. But I believe he's on to something about the human heart because a lot of anger often stems from this kind of comparison chart. And I listen to people and listen to people. And, you know, the root of the, a lot of the anger is, why am I going through this when my days before were so much better? There's a sense of nostalgia. They're thinking back of the days of health or the days when the kids were running on their knees or whatever it is, and these sweet memories of children playing with them. Or maybe it was the spouse accepting the proposal or seeing your child leave home and go to college. They have these memories, memories, and they're such sweet memories. And now they're saying to themselves, I have none of that, I have none of that. You know, nostalgia can create a lot of hope when we have a sense of, uh, I guess I should say, a sense of uh, enduring contentment. But nostalgia can also create an undue amount of suffering In my clinical opinion, this isn't my pastoral opinion, but a clinical opinion, I actually believe that nostalgia can be one of the deadliest emotions we feel because it can leave us with a question, why were the former days better than these that I have right now? And I honestly wouldn't be able to answer that, but he does. He doesn't necessarily answer it in a way that we might like, but he says, actually, you asking that, it's not necessarily wise. It's unwise, (laughs) it's unwise that we say such things. Why? Well, because when we start asking that question, we're kind of like Job. We're Job in the sense that we start to assume that the suffering that we may be going through right now is somehow the result of God's anger against us. And that's where I think we're flawed in our thinking. We, we, We believe that just because we're going through a hard time Does that mean God must be angry with me? It's easy to go there. I've gone there. (laughs) It's hard not to. Jesus, Jesus went there. Why why have you forsaken me? Jesus in his sanctified, perfected state, in his pure, pure God state, okay, said, why have you forsaken me? That could even be a godly emotion to feel that way when all the suffering is there. It's very natural. Even, can I even say Christ-like, as Jesus even said it himself? But it assumes that the suffering we may be going through is a result of God's anger. And often what, I often wonder what drives our anger is the assumption that God is angry with us. Therefore, therefore, shouldn't we be angry at God or maybe at the world? You know, I often see when I meet with people, they're so angry and deep down, they often kind of assume... I think God's really angry at me. I'm kind of making up for it. If he's angry, why not? Do you have the same logic? And yet he says to us, that's not wise because you don't know that. And the second thing is the preacher is telling us, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In other words, take things as they come because we cannot know what will come to pass so we must grasp whatever blessings or curses the moment actually offers us. And the day is good, he says to us, enjoy it with all of your heart. But if the day is evil, what were you expecting? You see, if you're expecting suffering, you appreciate and are content when the good comes. If you're expecting life to be a blessing, though, and evil comes, you start to become bitter. So I really think what he's doing here is he's changing the question. The question is not, why do bad things come? The question really should be, why do we experience good things? Why? That should be the question. Because if you're over here just kind of expecting that life should be always wonderful and then bad things come, well, you're gonna become bitter. But if you're asking the question, why should there be good and the good comes you're going to be content. Why do we experience good things in a broken world? My third point is be balanced. Be balanced. I love this part because he says, it's so easy right here to become either overly wicked or overly righteous. (laughs) To either become overly legalistic or, oh well, it doesn't matter. And he knows that. He knows that. He knows where the heart will go. That's what I love about the passage here. He knows if that's really true, if I don't know the will of God and if I'm just to hold on to these things and I'm going to the house of mourning, former days seem to be better than the the previous days, the the days now, it's easy to either become overly discouraged or I'm gonna be very, very overly, overly righteous. And I'll talk about what that means. But he says, don't be too righteous and take every word so seriously. Modern language, what he's really kind of saying here, if I could use modern language, lighten up, (laughs) just a little bit, (laughs) just a little bit, (laughs) lighten up, because in this section, the the preacher really balances us. See, there's some advice here that can lead to depression. Go to the house of mourning, go to funerals, become morbid. Quite the contrary, if God gives a reward, rejoice in that reward, since we don't know what will come. Who is expecting this year, this year, would be where all of us can't even touch last year if I were to speak to you. And we should not be over-righteous or over-wicked, but I like what he says here, he says, but what we really should do is fear God, fear God. Who are people who are over-righteous? What does that mean? Does that mean that we shouldn't be holy? Does that mean that we shouldn't pray more? No. I think what he's saying here is that people who tend to be over-righteous, just like the people who tend to be over-wicked, is that they like predictions. Everything in its little place. The same thing with the house of mirth. Everything in its little place. Can't do either. Michael Fox, not the actor, the commentary says, we should accept in ourselves a mixture of good and bad, straining for perfection, in other words, he says, is presumptuous. It's a refusal to accept human limitations. After all, no one can be totally righteous, as verse 20 says. Surely there is no one on earth so righteous as to do good without ever sinning. That's also what First John says as well. Examples of excessive righteousness, as this quote of uh, uh, Ibn Isra, he mentions praying all day and self-affliction Practices he ascribes to the hermits in the land of Edom. They're trying to build this kind of false virtue in an attempt to be actually more righteous than the creator. I could figure God out. But he also refers to real wickedness. What he's doing here is accepting the inevitable that all of us are flawed. To summarize Fools try to predict life because they have an unconstrained view of human nature. They believe that if we just put the right church policies maybe, preach the right sermons, raise the kids a certain way, everything's going to go exactly as planned. But remember that the fools and the wicked have this in common. They don't like surprises. They're uncomfortable with sovereign mysteries of God's plan. God, it was supposed to be like this. Why won't you do this? And we don't know. Therefore, (laughs) don't spend so much energy being perfect, especially if that's not going to make an ounce of difference on God's plans tomorrow. But what he says is, fear God. Fear him. Don't try, don't ever try to control him. Lighten up. (laughs) Just a little bit. If your servant curses you, he says, don't take it to heart. Have you not also done the same thing? Wisdom can be attained, but it's not easy to apply. And what God's plan, on the other hand, is far, it's deep. Who can find it? Who can find it? I just pray that we would apply this word in our hearts as we continue to grow in the fear of God, the fear that we don't know, which is the very thing that will put us on our knees and increase a sense of joy and delight and contentment in the blessings that God has given us right now. Again, it's not so much why do curses come, but why don't they come more often? May we apply this word to our hearts as we live in this world. Amen.